Welcome to the Common Good Hour, hosted by Drew Reynolds, Roger Zaclupe, and Carrie Rebens. In this podcast, you'll learn about the ways nonprofit and social sector professionals are tackling the big problems of our time so you can improve your practice and advance the common good in your community. Hi, everyone. I'm Roger Zaclupe. And I'm Carrie Rebens. And I'm Drew Reynolds. Today, we'll dive into the world of mental health practice, inviting two amazing professionals who are engaged in providing counseling and mental health service in their communities. I'm really excited about this episode because to kick us off, we have Dr. Sonia Richardson, owner of Another Level Counseling and Consultation and assistant professor at UNC Charlotte School of Social Work in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yep. And then after Sonia, we'll be joined by Erica Gregory, owner and clinical director at Johns Creek and Alpharetta Counseling for Children and Adults, as she speaks about the work she has done to adapt the practice and business through social distancing to meet the needs of the clients they serve. So what both of our interviews will focus on today is the topic of telemedicine and how service delivery in the field of mental health is going through this rapid transformation. Um, and before we kind of dive into these interviews, we want to take a little time to talk with you all about telehealth and telemedicine and uh, to get us started. So, Roger, can you tell us a little bit, what is telehealth or telemental health and what should we know about it? Sure. So before we go into that, um, just briefly... Um, the way individuals have, have been, so if we're looking at pre-COVID-19, individuals receiving t- uh, mental health, mental wellness services um, would typically um, go to an often setting or sometimes even have individuals or providers um, who are doing maybe perhaps a little bit more intensive type of work come into their home setting or their community setting and provide support that way. So with COVID-19 now uh, impacting all of our lives, We've seen an increase in, in telehealth and telemedicine, uh, which is providing the same mental wellness services, but through the use of technology. And so there's uh, been an increase in, in the availability of providers being able to, to do telehealth and to do telemedicine. And so we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the struggles and the challenges that, that everybody across the board has been experiencing from uh, individuals who need that type of support to the individuals who are providing that type of support. And so, you know, we can have a little bit of a pros and cons list, right? Um, for for a while, there was this concern about uh, HIPAA compliance. So do did the providers have software and did they have the ability to be compliant um, through privacy laws, you know? And so how, how COVID-19 impacted us so rapidly, uh, there had to be certain things that had to be mobilized in order for practitioners and providers to be able to provide that type of support. So that I, I don't know if you could call that a challenge or a pro or a con, but it's one of those those things that sort of lived in between because now people are able to provide that type of support. Um, however, it it took some time to sort of get that moving. Right. Some of the pros about this really is there is is it's convenient. It it helps reduce the stigma that that surrounds mental wellness. And we definitely are doing this. We're proving that we can do this through social distancing. And so that's, that's, you know, one of the things that we can say telehealth, telemedicine is, is something that's been pretty, that's been really useful right now. Uh, some of the cons is that there's this, um, you know, with traditional mental wellness support, there's, there's the in-person contact, right? So there's a lot that goes with being able to provide services and visually see things that we were not able to to see whether we're doing something through telehealth or te- telemedicine or through audio 
And so there's been some concern about, are you really capturing the entire story by not being able to see the whole picture through the in-person meeting that you would have with somebody? And then also being with somebody sort of improves that client provider relationship. And, you know, um, but again, I, I do feel like agencies or and organizations, nonprofits are, are mobilizing to reach out to communities that perhaps had difficulties with transportation, um, difficulties with time, because, uh, whenever, um, supportive services are being offered might not be during that time frame that fits that individual. So looking at the, the way we're utilizing telehealth and tele- telemedicine is reaching out to a different, um, population, which is a good thing. Um, an example I have, I am currently uh, doing work with an organization called Kindermorn in Charlotte, North Carolina. Kindermorn offers uh, grief support and grief counseling to individuals who have experienced the loss of a loved one. And so we were getting ready to begin a four-week uh, seminar, a group seminar, um, for parents who have just experienced the loss of a child. And so once COVID-19 hit, uh, we had to put a pause on that. And we talked really long and hard about how do we continue to provide that type of support for parents who who need it, but yet also remain social distanced and adhere to the 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 policies that are that are going on right now. And so we came up with uh, a Zoom um, uh, model and asked the parents if they were comfortable, made sure that everybody had the technology um, to participate. And we successfully did it. Um, we had great feedback from parents about it. Um, but it was, you know, one of those things that it was necessary for that individual to be part of it. And the fact that Kindermord had that opportunity meant a lot to them. One thing I think about a lot with telemedicine and telehealth too is just the stigma I think that many people may feel, particularly if they're accessing those services for the first time. Uh, or who are living in a social context where they might have only known or thought of mental health services through the lens of that stigma and feeling like they don't necessarily have to take time out of their day. They don't have to tell somebody they're going someone, ask somebody to borrow the car, take time uh, maybe necessarily out of their work in a more uh, public way. Um, perhaps telemedicine kind of offers that sense of uh, ability to to access it discreetly, which I think may be a real benefit to some to some people. Um, and also, too, I think for some who may have transportation barriers or just time barriers, um, we'll get to this later on in the interview with uh, Erica, but that many families, your parents, you have um, children who just like can't find a, a babysitter or somebody who can watch their children while they, they need to go. And so there's a lot of, I think, some really interesting things um, or challenges or barriers to mental wellness that are being, in a sense, solved through this software. So, Carrie, what experiences have y'all had over at Camino with part of the organization providing that health and mental wellness support? Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that y'all are seeing there? Sure. Um, so, we serve the the population that we mostly serve are Latinos, um, first generation immigrants. So they were born in another country and mostly speaking Spanish. Some people speak English, but um, ninety eight percent of them, the language they prefer is Spanish. Um, and I think part of the the culture is it's really important to have you know the relationship and relational component of things. And I think our clients really appreciate that component, which is particularly important in mental health. And I know that you mentioned sometimes that might be a little 
little bit more difficult to achieve virtually than it is in person. I'm not being in the, the same room with that person. Um, but another, so some of our clients have been a little bit slow to adapt to the telehealth just because they're not accustomed to it. It's just not something that they're used to. Um, and we've noticed that some people either don't have smartphones or are having a hard time adjusting and figuring out how to work different programs and things to, so that they're just opting to do audio instead of visual. And I know this is this has been the case for um, our primary care and I think also for some of the mental health services as well. So I think that that could slightly impact the service if they're only able to hear from the person rather than see them. So there are a few barriers there to think about with technology. But as you both already mentioned, too, there are so many pros as well. We've also been able to serve more clients um, in a shorter amount of time because they're not having to come in and, you know, go through the check-in and the waiting room and all of that. And many of our clients report transportation, like you guys mentioned, and childcare. That's a big one as well. So if you don't have to leave your home, um, it's a lot easier to attend your session. Um, and then stigma is always a big part. I know that's true for all populations, but I think there's a certain stigma in the Latino community about seeking help for mental health care. And that's also alleviated because people don't necessarily need to know that you're seeking care. So some of the things that you guys mentioned, um, that's been our experience so far. This is new territory for Camino, but I think we're starting to see that this is the future and this is definitely an option that we want to continue to pursue. We would still have our normal in-person services as well for those people that feel more comfortable. But I think this is a good option for a lot of people. And so we're hoping that um, as a part of this conversation, many of you listeners who may be mental health providers yourselves or who may be access mental health services may find this conversation really beneficial. And we really wanted to bring in these two amazing experts, um, Erica Gregory and, and Sonia Richardson, to have this conversation with us to give us a sense of what these challenges are and how different examples of different organizations who are trying to adapt and, and address them. And so uh, without further ado, we'll just go ahead and get started with our interview with Sonia Richardson. Hey, everyone. This is Drew here once more, speaking a week after we recorded our introduction to this episode. I wanted to let you know that about halfway through creating this episode, actually just after we recorded Erica's interview and right before we recorded our interview with Sonia, George Floyd was killed at the hands of law enforcement in Minneapolis, revealing yet again that the legacy of systemic racism remains very much alive in our present moment. This event, coupled with the social and economic disruption of a pandemic, has made the regular and constant exposure of trauma inevitable with the disproportionate burden placed on black and brown people. We asked Sonia, who invited fellow clinician Matthew Mills to join the conversation, to also talk about these events using a mental health lens. Let's get started. So to kick off our interviews for today, we wanted to focus on this topic of telemental health and mental health during the time of COVID-19. And to do that, we've brought two amazing clinicians and social workers to talk about that. So first we have off Dr. Sonia Richardson, and Dr. Sonia Richardson is a licensed clinical social worker, professor, entrepreneur, and researcher. She is a clinical assistant professor at the School of Social Work at UNC Charlotte, and is also the founding owner of Another Level Counseling and Consultation in Charlotte, North Carolina. Her research is focused on behavioral health care leadership, suicide, and mental health among diverse communities. She also, uh, as you see in her bio here, enjoys dancing, reading, and vacationing in her spare time. So welcome, Dr. Richardson. Thank you. Thank you. 
We also have Matthew Mills, who is an MSW and clinical social worker, also at another level counseling and consultation. He received both his bachelor's and master's degrees in social work from the School of Social Work at UNC Charlotte. And his approach to practice and style is uh, a mixture of clinical social work modalities with theoretical approaches to bridge those gaps between individual needs and macro change. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you very much. Thank you. Awesome. So to kick us off here, um, I wanted to just ask both of you to talk a little bit about how maybe providing an introduction to how your work and how the clinical practice through this sort of crazy social distancing world that we're in right now has changed um, as a result of COVID-19. So great question. Uh, So our practice has changed. It's really done a 360 um, since COVID-19. So prior to COVID-19 and the pandemic, we as an agency had begun transitioning everything to uh, electronic-based services. So our intake forms, our consent forms were being um, sent to clients electronically. So we had already started to um, digitalize our Um, content and forms. And so we had started down that track. Um, And then when COVID-19 hit, we had already began that process. And so it made it uh, somewhat of a seamless flow for our clients. Um, I would say as a result of COVID-19, we of course have had to change most of our practices um, as clinicians uh, and as an agency. So all of our services, of course, right now are still being provided remotely to clients. Uh, We're able to provide it by telephone, also by um, video through uh, software that we're using with our clients. And so everything is by video or by phone. Our practice serves uh, predominantly about 85% of our clients are clients of color. And so It's been really interesting to observe the shift in change with practice, because what we're finding is that more and more individuals of color are reaching out to therapy and receiving the therapy by video or by phone is really seeming to decrease the stigma associated with mental health. So now these individuals can receive services from the comfort of their home. And so it's it's creating a shift, uh, which creates some fear in me for when insurance companies are going to say, okay, it's time to go back to -to face-to-face because I really do think this shift has helped to increase access to services for populations of color and also helped to decrease stigma. So, Sonia, I'm really glad you mentioned that. You talked about this sort of fear in regards to when this starts settling down a bit, what are uh, insurance is going to say? You know, are they going to say, all right, let's go back to the, the, the way it was before, which then may in turn cut access or the way that individuals in the community, particularly c- communities of color, receive supportive services right now, um, like they've re- been receiving right now, um, may, may cut some of that off. And so I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I feel like that's something that we know may happen, but we're not really we're not having that conversation about it the way we should. Absolutely. And I, I think, unfortunately, many of the decisions that are being made are still based on white norms. Uh, so when I consider for our practice, all of our clinicians are clinicians of color. And we work primarily with clients of color. We are within a high risk population uh, as far as getting diagnosed and as far as if we receive medical care, our odds of making it out of the hospital are, are a lot lower, not even a little bit lower. They're a lot lower. So as a business owner, I am perplexed about sending my therapist back into an office with 
clients who are also high risk um, just because of our race. And so, you know, it, it seems as if these decisions that are being made are not being made uh, for those populations for which the vulnerabilities are increased. So Matthew, to follow up, in your clinical work with clients, um, what are you noticing that's maybe changing or different in terms of the relationship that you're building with clients over telemedicine? How is how is your practice in sort of in those conversations changed? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, so, so I'll say on, on two levels. One, I have some um, some background experience in a community-based service called Intensive Home. Um, often I find families somewhat struggle with breaking the stigma and, and can be a little bit more um, apprehensive, um, especially when you have to go to an office. We have the power struggle. You know, you have this, this individual that's innately given some some level above you. Um Intensive in a home, I found, however, when you're able to build rapport in someone's home where they are, they're able to let down a little bit more and they're able to um, build a stronger bond and connection. I feel to some degree that that work happening the same way with telehealth. Um, I have a lot more clients that were somewhat standoffish or just less likely to open up that have been able to open more so because, as uh, Dr. Richardson said, they're in their own homes. Um, so I feel like for the majority of my clients, we've actually been able to build a better bond. Um, we can find at least some some humor in how we're communicating. You know, we're all over telehealth. We're all over Zoom meetings. We're, we're all doing things virtually right now. Um, so it doesn't feel as stifling when it comes to going into an office where we sit down, we're on the couch. Um, we're actually in a space where we can both be where we are. We can both be in our homes. We have some some similarity in where we can recognize our humanity when we're, when we're across from each other a little bit more so. Um, and we don't necessarily feel as though someone has power or control over the other, it just becomes a little bit more of a natural, um, a natural communication um, vibe. And it becomes a little bit more conversational, actually. Matthew, I love how you describe that, how the place, how it changes the conversation and the fact that people who are in their own homes and in the places that are comfortable to them are able to access the services as a way of breaking down some of those barriers. Um, so, Sonia, I'm going to ask you a question in regards to self-care. So, can you tell us a little bit about how your team is able to practice self-care and and support for each other? Uh, because this is something that's really important. I know a lot of the uh, focus is about supporting communities, um, but we also need to uh, focus on how are how are how are we supporting each other who are in the field working and and doing the work that Matthew and yourself and others are are currently. Um, doing right now? So from a collective effort, uh, what we're doing is actually a recommendation that Matthew made uh, a couple of months ago when this first started. Uh, And Matthew had asked, could we start having some Zoom meetings and just check in with each other and just see how things are going and get a pulse? And so we started as an agency, as a practice, having uh, these Zoom meetings where we actually have competitive (laughs) games. Matthew actually won the last game uh, on the call. We have we play games, and so we uh, laugh for 30, 45 minutes, you know, focus on just a little bit of business, but spend the majority of the time just really checking in on each other and just um, just having fun. And so part of the self-care for us as therapists is just allowing us that time and space to just come together, meet, see each other's faces, but at the same time, just have fun, just, you know, just really be ourselves and let ourselves uh, loose. And so we've been doing that from a collective effort. I would say as far as um, self-care for me as a therapist, uh, it's really been, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, we have um, other issues happening in this country. And 
uh, for myself as African-American female and a mother and a wife, uh, a mother of two sons, two African-American sons. Uh, for me, it's been disconnecting from social media, disconnecting from the news at times to allow myself to heal. Um, oftentimes, you know, reading emails, uh, watching the news, looking at social media, sometimes those uh, those are constant areas of our sources of microaggressions, you know, personal cuts. And so I have to be able to disconnect from those things and sometimes just unplug. And so my self-care is unplugging. Sonia, I'm so glad you mentioned that important need to, you know, take a step back from the news because there's so much that's happening that, you know, is affecting, you know, our uh, providers, but also clients. And so, of course, we had the case this past week of George Floyd, a black man who lost his life at the hands of law enforcement, very reminiscent of the case of Eric Gardner and many others. And, you know, moments like these remind us that these social challenges we faced before the pandemic are still very much a part of our lives now. And so what are ways that nonprofits in the mental health community, broadly speaking, can support families and individuals of color who are experiencing these multiple traumas at once? Great question. Um, so one thing that I think it's really important is to, for us to affirm what uh, individuals of color are experiencing in this country, um, which is oftentimes racial trauma uh, and uh, racial battle fatigue at the same time. So we're constantly dealing with racial trauma on a daily basis. So, you know, in, in, in our world currently, there's a lot of talk about trauma. You know, there's people are experiencing all kinds of trauma and let's do trauma focused therapy and let's really uh, focus on the trauma. But, but the trauma of racism, that is a that, that is a national public health issue. That is a trauma. That's a real trauma that most of our clients are dealing with on a daily basis and ourselves as therapists, we're dealing with it as well. Um, and so being able to really call it what it is, but then offer strategies for healing. So within our practice, we focus on racial based healing. I'm sorry, racial trauma healing and really helping people to deal with the trauma that comes with racism um, and allowing it to not necessarily make you um, angry or, or cause you to self-isolate or increase depressive symptoms, but figuring out how do I deal with this daily trauma um, and still allow myself to show up, still allow myself to be resilient, still allow myself to live a happy, enjoyable life despite the daily uh, frustrations that I may experience as a person of color. So what I've started doing recently, since so this is all, well, the current events are very recent. Um, Checking in with my families, so I especially have a youth who is about 14 years of age, young black male, um, who initially his family um, mentioned a lot of what they didn't want to have happen to him. You know, so they want to keep him safe, want them to keep him out of bad situations. Um, so knowing um, just of the recent events, we wanted to, I just wanted to check in with them to see how they were doing, if they had any space of discussion. Um, I can say that the father actually mentioned he, he was concerned for my safety which really catapulted my just level of understanding of where we are to another level. Um, it's always often that we look out for each other. Um, it's from, hey, check on check on each other. Hey, um, make sure you're good. But it's I don't have it as often where someone reaches out for me because I could be seen as that victim as well. Um, so mental health wise, I think a big portion of the therapists in our community are often um, often white. Often we see different types of meetings. We see a lot of um, ethics-based trainings. We see a lot of um, cultural competency-based trainings. I think one thing we can do as a, as a field of profession is 
while we are talking and asking questions to also listen and sometimes be silent. Um, it can often be asked of black people, people of color, um, people in marginalized communities to tell their story. And then there's an interjection of, okay, here's my perspective of your story. I think mental health can do a lot in our silence as well. We can learn more so, and we don't always have to have an answer immediately. Um, right now, there is no immediate answer to this situation. There's nothing that's automatically going to fix this. But if we're able to slow down and just learn, get back to simple ideas of educating ourselves about each other and not trying to have an expectation of this magic wand or this thing that we can just do right now to stop it. Um, I see a lot of people posting, what can we do right now? Right now, what you can do is learn. Um, if you haven't listened, listen more. If you've listened before, listen differently. But listen to those that are hurting. Listen to those, those that are in the middle of this and just take note of, of their thoughts. Um, and then from there, we can start to work on, okay, well, how can we work with clients differently? How can we work with, with other individuals differently? We can work on that as we're going through. But immediately right now, I'd say if we're able to sit back and listen, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to learn a lot more than if we try to just automatically throw out just different thoughts and ideas for um, what we can do as a system. And I would like to add on to what Matthew said, because uh, I think that's a really good point. I think uh, along with listening, ask us what it is that we need. Uh, so oftentimes there's not that ask, you know, well, how can I assist? You know, wh what is it that you do need? And so like during this time period, you know, if we're finding that our clients of color in our communities are now reaching out for help because this teletherapy has helped to decrease the stigma, then one way that you could help is to help us to advocate for increased telehealth access. And so that's one thing that would help our community to continue to be able to heal through receiving access to services that perhaps were not easily accessible to us before. But oftentimes what I find is people aren't asking us what it is that we need. You know, people aren't listening, as Matthew stated. I love, Matthew, how you said listen more and listen differently. And I just envisioned a T-shirt like in, in how, you know, how we can get messages out. Right. So a T-shirt that says listen more and listen differently and and your picture on it matthew just you know really uh like that yeah no but it's it's i think it's beautiful that i don't know that anyone needs my face like that, but you know but I, I think it's beautiful that you said that because right now you know it it is a very trying and troubling time and it's been like that for for communities of color it's not it's something that hasn't stopped Right. And so right now there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of uh, anger. There's a lot of, I want an answer to this. And, um, and it, it, we have to acknowledge the fact that there is still that, there, there's still that simmering of, we need to know what is going on right now because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I really love the fact that we can listen more and listen differently, maybe can help us get some kind of solution not necessarily an answer, but help create solutions that'll be impactful. Um, but, you know, it is, it is very difficult right now to, to be able to listen. Just, it's just kind of being honest, right? Uh, for me, it's like, wow, it's really difficult to just listen. Um, but I appreciate that you said that. I really do. No, absolutely. And I think this, this point of listening, it's, I think we take it for granted often, like, you know, that, that I can be asked a question and then we, but we often, we often prepare to respond whenever a question is asked. So like Sonia saying, if you're asking, hey, what can you, what do you need? Um, most of the people are preparing for how they respond to, and it can be either if I can't do that now, I'll offer thoughts and prayers or, or something, you know, if, but if we're listening, if I tell you what I need, if it's need, if the need better access to telehealth, take that, 
You know, it's not necessarily taking that and, you know, now let's have a conversation about it because really the conversation can also be very taxing. You know, so if we're able to do those things, listen, gear for the solutions and then put them in action when when society is we are and society are also prepared, um, because we know a lot right now, if we try to have too many conversations at once, uh, it, it gets deafening and it gets overwhelming. You know, so if we're able to listen, take in some themes and then go from there. You know, it, I think it becomes a little bit easier for people on the outside. So for anyone that's looking like, well, hey, what can I do to help? If you take it and listen and then kind of marinate on it for a little bit, you'll be able to process it better and then make some action out of it if you're capable for whatever action you can take, as opposed to feeling like right now in that moment, you have to do something immediately. And I would I would add on to what Matthew stated so eloquently. I would also <laughs> say listen to our silence. Yes. I've been very intentionally silent lately. Yes. Um, and if you're not listening, you're not even going to hear my silence. Yes. Right. I love it. If I can ask one question too, I'm curious about how, you know, we're living in a time right now um, where the pandemic can seem all encompassing, um, affecting everything and everyone and outside of an individual person's control. And, uh, and racism acts in a very similar way where it seems like it's beyond an individual as it's this large systemic problem. So when you're having conversations with individuals who are feeling like they're just overwhelmed by these larger systemic forces, what does that look like? And what are the ways in which you help those clients um, kind of manage those challenges? So great question. Uh, oftentimes what I find is when working with clients, they don't necessarily sometimes have access to the same language that I've had access to. And so being able to provide some basic insight and education regarding white privilege, regarding oppression, regarding what is racism, discrimination, what is racial battle fatigue, what is racial trauma. Oftentimes uh, within our communities, we have our own words for these um, things that we experience. And sometimes we don't even know there are words for it. And so when I talk to my clients and I say, well, you do know that that's this, that this, there is systemic oppression and that this exists within various systems. And you might see this in the educational system or you might see this at work. They're often like, wow, OK, I didn't I, I knew I was experiencing something. I just didn't have words for it. And so oftentimes it's helping them provide language and provide words to help validate the experience. You know, for many years as people of color, um, we were, we were um, often ingrained to think that what we were experiencing was almost in itself a mental health disorder. So us complaining about not having access to certain things or not having not being able to get the, get into the door at certain universities or college. You know, we were we were told that there was you know something wrong with us, that we just need to work harder. But now that there are some words for what we're experiencing and we know that it's systemic, when our clients can also use those same words and understand the meaning behind them, it empowers them to know there's nothing necessarily wrong with you as a person. You are living in a in a system that has these very uh, sparse systemic uh, inequities. And so it's really being able to give them the same tools and language to know how to call out the same things that we're being able to call out. And I'd say, um, one, whatever the telehealth, the, the virtual mic drop is, you can do that after Dr. <laughs> Richardson's um, speak right there, because that was perfect. Um, and also, I mean, I, I've, I've been taking a, a trauma-focused approach in general. 
Um, because if we're talking about racism, we're talking about the visceral effects of it. That's something that's been lasting for for centuries now. Um, so it's not something brand new by any means. But I think we've we've somewhat become accustomed to living in a um, in a traumatic world. So the CPTSD that comes naturally with being black to some degree, um, everyone has different stories. So we definitely can't say and generalize that we all have the same experience, but to a degree, we do come from the same place and society sees us very similarly. Um, so I take an approach to just treat everyone as though you may have been there. And with the education that comes with not just the language, as uh, Dr. Richardson mentioned, um, but just the knowledge of it's not just you. And if you feel something, the validation of if you feel something, then yes, it's real. What is it? Let's talk about that and figure out what it is for you. But it is very real. Um, and it is something that doesn't necessarily end with your story or with how we work together. Um, so making sure that they feel comfortable knowing that wherever we go from the end of our treatment and support is in a space of where they can still feel though they're validated no matter whether someone else says, no, you're not, and it's not what you think it is, or if there's someone else screaming louder than they are, that their point is still just as valid. You know, y'all just brought up some beautiful points again, and we appreciate you sharing not only your insight, but your wisdom. Um, Dr. Richardson, I wanted to ask you um, real quick about this initiative that you're part of, the collaborative work with Cardinal Innovations and UNC Charlotte uh, to prepare students uh, to become leaders. And uh, and I, you know, I feel like this connects with what we're discussing right now, because if we are seeing that there's this possibility of telemental health telemental services or telehealth, et cetera, as part of this wave that we should start looking towards. Um, can you talk a little bit about this program and how that connects with with uh, telemedicine, telehealth, telemental health? Sure. So uh, UNC Charlotte has a collaborative relationship with Cardinal Innovations Healthcare, specifically the School of Social Work. And uh, this past year, we were able to train um, graduate level uh, students, uh, social work and public health students on behavioral health care leadership practices. So it's the Behavioral Health Care Leadership Academy is the name of the program. Uh, and the, the whole um, reason behind the program is to really help students learn these behavioral health care practices, uh, leadership from a leadership and management perspective to help sustain agencies. So most of the behavioral health care agencies are uh, smaller to medium-sized businesses. You do have some larger agencies. And what has happened collectively over the years is that the smaller and medium-sized businesses, and this includes private practices as well, there's a high rate of them going out of business. And so there is the need to help uh, individuals learn, how do I practice as a clinician and practice well, such as Matthew, but then how do I also learn the, the necessary tools to keep the practice open? And so in this Behavioral Healthcare Leadership Academy program, we work with Cardinal executives to teach students strategies for keeping businesses open. So if they choose to go in private practice, they will learn strategies for how to have relationships with insurers, how to read clinical coverage policies so you're not committing fraud. Um, so they will learn different tools and strategies. As far as uh, kind of some things that we're thinking about or considering is how do we now equip students with how to handle uh, practices as it pertains to teletherapy services. Uh, in our school of social work right now, our students aren't trained on how to do teletherapy. And so perhaps there could be something within the next uh, round of the academy to train students on how to do those those skills as well. And I think you might have somebody uh, that's here on our podcast, Mr. Matthew Mills, who would uh, 
who is uh, going to be an expert in telemed- uh, telehealth and telemedicine, right, Matt? Yeah, well, we're working in that direction, but I think what um, what Dr. Richardson is working on and what they're, what's what's going on there is absolutely important, and I think directly connects to what we're talking about because often when we see a field that's working with individuals that aren't necessarily connected, so if we see a field that's um, dominated by non-people of color, working with a lot of people of color, if we're able to get more access and access that's beneficial, it does nothing but good for the entire system, not just the people of color, but also for those around them that can learn, listen, and be educated as well. So props of all to Dr. Richardson and you at the School of Social Work for doing this great work. Well, and I also wanted to give another a plug real quick. Uh, again, it, Dr. Richardson, you're doing amazing uh, things. You've done amazing things. I've known you for, we've known each other for a long time, I, I believe, at least 15, 15 plus years or more. But uh, um, really, really great that there's a release of a book, of a new book that focuses on socialization, mentoring, and identity research for Black students in STEM. The name of the book is yeah. Seeing the Hidden Minority, Increasing the Talent Pool Through Identity, Socialization, and Mentoring Constructs. So congratulations on that. I know that it's it's being released. If, and uh, if you could quickly just give us a, a brief synopsis um, on the book and where, where folks may be able to uh, to obtain and buy the book. Yeah, absolutely. So this book really focuses on Um, How do we increase and support the pipeline of Black students in STEM education? We know that STEM fields uh, are particularly helpful for helping to increase economic mobility, but oftentimes Black students don't have the access, they don't have the mentoring to sustain within the fields, and they don't have the support. And so this this book intersects social work and urban education to really provide some strategies for how can we help to keep them Um, within the field, within STEM fields, and support them in those fields while they're there. So excited about this release and and innovative ways to really try to help increase economic mobility while also um, addressing some of the socialization issues that may occur within STEM. Thank you, Sonia. And I think that for all of our uh, listeners, um, they'll have a chance to see a link to that book on our website. And we'll see if we can uh, share that as widely as we can, because it's such an important topic. Before we wrap up um, our episode here today, I want to give the floor to both of you to just share anything else that you would like to with our audience today. I'll slide in uh, this time. Um, So all is not lost. I think right now where we are, um, and this doesn't just go for where recent events and and the the systemic racism that we often talk about um, prior to or uh, post an incident happening. in general, when we're talking about the pandemic, when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about our lives and our ability to live, all isn't lost. Um, there is support out. It can be difficult to access at times, but it is not impossible completely. Um, there is someone likely with any one of your listeners that can help them and assist them. And there are definitely um, providers and Cardinal Innovations and other um, insurances and those that can help them access. But it takes the individual to hopefully hear those words and know that wherever they are, uh, there is hope for it and hopefully believe that so that they can access it wherever you are. And I learned this from um, Obi-Wan Sekupe and Dr. Richardson that whatever, wherever you are now, you, you made it. You got this far. If you've coped in ways that you aren't proud of, well, you've done it to get you as far as you can. Um, 
when we're able to be a little bit more uh, honest and vulnerable with ourselves, we're able to access and say, you know what, here I am, regardless of where I am. So wherever you are, take care of yourself. Know that you can make it and continue making it. And as long as there's a tomorrow, there is time to continue. That is absolutely beautiful, Matthew. Um, And I love your message of hope. And I would also add on to that to realize that during this time period, regardless of which position you're in, if you're a therapist, if you're um, uh, someone who receives services, if you uh, are just, you know, someone who is, is works, has a business or is doing anything uh, different, just know that we each have our own intersecting identities. And for myself, uh, as far as my intersectionality, I'm a black woman, I'm a mother, I'm a business owner, therapist, I'm an educator. Uh, and, and the list could go on and on. And I show up differently in each one of those spaces. And uh, as Matthew um, alluded to earlier, when you're listening, also understand that when you're listening to people uh, in all of our intersectionality, that each of my identities may have different needs. They may show up very differently. And so during this time period, uh, it's okay to take notice. How am I doing as a mother? How am I doing as a wife? How am I feeling uh, as a therapist right now? Like really take note of how you are showing up in those various identities. And it's okay if you're not okay in one of those identities. Um, And it's also okay to reach out for help. And so, you know, so just just know that we show up as whole beings but we live in these intersecting identities. And sometimes the, there's, those identities do not work well collectively together, and it's okay. Matthew, uh, thanks for the uh, Obi-Wan Sukupe shout out there. Uh, <laughs> that was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> I, uh, for listeners out there, I had the honor and, and privilege to, to be a faculty member who, who taught Matthew in the MSW program. And uh, he's just uh, an individual that I saw um, and respected, uh, definitely and saw a lot of wonderful potential and so glad that you're doing what you're doing out in the community. Dr. Richardson, you are an amazing friend, colleague, social worker, and, um, advocate. So I really am so glad that you, you've joined us today. Um, I wanted to just take, I know we've talked about a lot of, a lot of things. Some of this has been really heavy, really important, but I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Dr. Richardson, about, um, you know, sort of self-care and how your team, you all get together. Um, Matthew won one of the first, I guess, com- competitions y'all had, and um, which doesn't surprise me because he's very competitive at things, right? I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to take away of the seriousness of what we talked about, but I go back to, again, what you said earlier about sort of having fun, like keeping that in mind, self-care, especially during times like this, where we can still not lose that side of creativity and fun and to Matthew's message, hope. Um, so I'm going to make take a little turn here and just ask what I become Gen X Raj at the end of uh, each episode, I turn into like Gen- Generation X Roger and and uh, just ask people about things 90s, 80s and 90s related. Um, so if if you can perhaps share what what's uh, what's one of your favorite 80s or 90s songs or maybe perhaps 80s or 90s musicians, I'm going to take you back. So uh, if you can think of one or two. Oh, wow. So I was going to say that they recently had a versus battle with Jagged Edge and 112 on Instagram. Yep. Uh, and 
I would say that took me way back to the 90s, I believe that was. Yep. Uh, and I did not realize how much I was into groups at the time, group singers. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I would say Jagged, Jagged Edge and 112 were some of my favorite 90s artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still now, I mean, this last week, every day when I walk, I listen to those those artists. All right. <laughs> there you yeah, go. Yeah. Matthew? So I'll throw out, definitely keeping with the R&B track, I'll throw out Boys to Men because that was just, I mean, the soundtrack to the 90s. Um, still watching those videos and how, I don't know why it rained all the time, but, you know, a lot of rain in the 90s, apparently. Um, and I think I'll, I'll say DMX. I think he was the one of the first um, hip-hop cassette tapes. I might have to break down what cassette tapes are these days. Um, but he was one of the first uh, cassette wow. tapes I remember having way back in the day. Um, and I want to say I had to buy it twice because mm. I think my brother or sister took my copy, so I had to get it again. Um, so definitely, definitely my, my takes for the, uh, for the 90s. So, Drew, back in the day, we used to listen to cassette tapes on a cassette player. <laughs> See, Roger always uses this episode as a chance to give me a hard time for how young I am because I always give him a hard time for his Gen X world. Like, I embrace my millennialness, all right? I love you, man. I love you. All right. And so that was Dr. Sonia Richardson and Matthew Mills. You can follow Sonia at S-O-N-Y-I-A-R-I-C-H on Twitter. And you can follow uh, Matthew Mills on his Facebook page, Matthew Mills, LCSW. And you can learn more about both of their work at www.anotherlevelcounseling.com. Thank you for listening. I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Letter from a Birmingham Jail. With the pandemic in full swing, it seems like everything has gone virtual. Making a call on Zoom has become a cultural phenomenon with our web conferencing lives portrayed in social media, commercials, and even Saturday Night Live. We wanted to explore how this phenomenon is playing out in the social sector with professionals engaged in direct service work, particularly in the area of telehealth. Joining us today for this conversation is Erica Gregory, licensed marriage and family therapist and owner of Johns Creek and Alpharetta Counseling. Her practice offers counseling services for people across the life course, including play therapy with children, adolescent counseling, adult psychotherapy, couples therapy, and senior counseling services. Erica, welcome to the Common Good Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Erica, thanks. And as we start, can you share maybe a little bit about your work and why you chose a career in mental health and in counseling? Great question. So uh, 
it all really started back when I was younger. I always wanted to help people. I was always curious to why, why people interact and engage and have relationships like they do. And it evolved in college to um, having a mentor who was a marriage and family therapist. And that's really what opened my eyes to the field. Um, and, you know, in, in, in college, when you get a book and they tell you, read chapter two, read chapter five, um, I, I got that book on relationships and on marriages. And I read the whole thing. I still have it. The book, the it's broke. The binding is broken. Um, and that's really where I found my love to, to work with people, um, to connect with people and to, to help people's marriages as well as work with children. The whole family system, um, is really what I'm passionate about. And I think that's, um, fascinating how you kind of talk about that, like experience of working with that book. I can think of some in my own time too, where you have one class or one thing that just totally changes your mind and you, it just grips you. And, um, absolutely. And so fantastic that you've had that experience here. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're doing a lot of counseling work, which involves a lot of one-on-one -on -one and direct service work with people. So how is your practice changing with COVID-19? It's, I think the best question would be, how has it not changed? So we're very, like you said, a social business. Um, we, we connect with our clients one-on-one. -on -one. This is a very much of a relational type of work, but also as a staff, as an office, we connect and support each other. So we're going into each other's offices, offering each other support if we had a tough session or if a client has gone through a lot, um, and also just encouraging each other as we go through this. So we've gone on 100% online with all of our counseling services. We started that back in mid-March. We're hoping to evolve slowly back into the office as it's safe to do so. Um, so. So that is a big impact with just our client care and being able to reach our clients through um, telemental health platforms. But then also um, supporting each other. We've had to do a lot of Zoom calls, um, a lot of phone calls with each other, a lot of texting with each other to keep that support going um, with each other as, as counselors. I think that's a really great example, too, where you talk about not just, you know, supporting the, you're doing the direct service work, but also making sure to support your team, because I yeah, think absolutely. that your team so much is, you know, incurred or enduring so many different challenges and difficulties as well. What, what is what is your team telling you with respect to the tele mental health platforms they're using? How, how has that experience been like for them? So far, it's been pretty positive. Now, there's been certain groups of people where it hasn't worked as well, mostly the young children. It's really hard to do play therapy, which is a very non-directive style, which means I don't tell the child what to do. Uh, we kind of follow the child's lead. It's really hard to do that when we're on the phone. Um, I've been left in playrooms a few times now on the floor and I've had to call the parent on another line and say, Hey, I'm the child's in another room and I'm, I'm on the media in the middle of the playroom. Um, so that's been really tough, but every other population, um, adolescents, individual adults, couples, seniors, it's gone really well. And, and especially with the seniors and couples, I've been surprised because I never thought uh, telemental health would be a good platform for working with couples, but I've had the couples I've been working with set up the computer. So where I can see them both on the couch and, and it's, it's like, we're there again, like they're on my couch in my office and it's gone really well. And I've even got feedback from some of my clients that this is been helpful to not have to leave the home, not have to commute, not have to figure out babysitting with, with their older kids. They can just get them engaged in their rooms, doing something different. Um, and so that's worked out really well. So some of my clients may stay mental health after this, uh, but there's definitely the, the lack of connection. Um, you know, we can connect online, but it's different than being with someone, being able to hug someone, being able to, you know, cry together in a moment that's really hard. Um, where you're, 
you can truly feel not alone when there's someone is in the room with you. Um, we're together, we're talking over the platform, over the social media or over the um, telemed, but it's, there is a difference. And as people are talking with you, I imagine they're sharing all kinds of things and you've had plenty of experience, you know, working with your team on various counseling and mental health issues um, through your practice. But what do you think is emerging now that's unique to this time with the respect of what your clients are experiencing as a result of the pandemic? Loneliness and lack of structure. I think are the two biggest things Um, because there are some people who live alone who have had a hard time with this because they don't have anyone in the home to connect to. Or if you do have a spouse, um, a husband, wife um, who lives in the home with you and you're not exactly in a good place, you can feel very alone while in the room with someone else. Um, So loneliness has been really, really tough for a lot of people um, as this drags on. And then structure. I mean, if you don't have to, you can wear pajama pants while you're at work because your staff can only see the top half of you. If most of the time you don't have to wear your bra, you don't have to worry about makeup. You pull up your hair half the time, you know, you get out of a structure of, you don't have to do the thing, some of the things that you were in the habit of doing. And that can be hard over time. At first it's fun, but over time, that lack of structure kind of gets heavy. Um, and it, sometimes we can't put our word to what it is, but it gets harder. Um, so I've definitely seen that with a lot of, a lot of my clients of just the, I can't get out. I, I don't have to do the daily things I used to do. Um, I, you know, little little things like that just start falling apart and um, who we are can start dwindling away too. I think that lack of structure in particular, I know for me and for our family, we've tried to sort of put in a structure, which is kind of worked, I think. But without it, I feel like sometimes I feel kind of lost, you know, yeah, um, yeah. and knowing what day is it? What are we doing? Um, we actually sometimes just order food on the weekends just for the sense of being able to say, hey, this is a weekend and it's different than the week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we do something similar. We order movies online um, and we buy them so that we can keep them and they can watch them throughout the week, too. But it's like tonight's a new movie night, you know, because it's Friday. Uh, it, so that's been fun too, to create that structure that separation between it's the weekend versus the week. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. So what are you finding then that, you know, as you're having conversations with clients, what are things that are working, um, for people who can't change the circumstances that lead to the loneliness and that lead to that sense of feeling like you have a lack of structure? What, what are the practices that you're helping your clients with that are helping them through this time? That's a tough one because it's unique to each individual. So each person has they struggle with the structure um, or with the loneliness is unique to them. So so the um, intervention or the suggestion or the structure that we try to create is very tailored to where their struggle is. And and so it may be, you know, you have to set a timer and every two hours you walk outside and go on a walk uh, around your block just to get you out the door um, because they may be starting to shut themselves in too much. Or every day at 10, you've got to get dressed as if you're leaving the house. Don't wear pajamas all day. Um, or set a timer on your phone to go off so that you eat your three meals a day based on that timer. Um, and so that it's creating the structure is unique to the person because if some, one person may be fine with eating all three meals and, and, and shutting things down so that they can have that downtime, but some people may have a harder time with that. Um, and so it just kind of depends on the, on the person. But when it comes to connection, um, 
you know, I've heard some creative things that especially the adolescents are doing. One thing that I think is coming out of this, that's actually a good thing is that adolescents have had all of this social media and ability to connect online before all this happened, but now they're realizing the power of being together because they are missing it because they don't have it at school, their daily life, getting together at the coffee shops. So they're kind of seeing, yes, this technology stuff is great, but being together is also very important too. And so I think that's a great learning curve for the younger generations, but they've, they've come up with some pretty create creative ideas of meeting each other in an empty parking lot, staying a few feet apart and staying in their cars, talking on their phones so they can see each other, engage each other, but, but still have that sense of safety and that, um, you know, we're not spreading the germs that way. Um, and then Zoom, another thing that's really interesting is that the older generations are learning how to use this technology because they never really had to before. And so seeing um, seniors, seeing um, older couples, seeing um, even even my generation, the 30s and the 40s starting to really go, oh, that's what FaceTime is. That's how you use that. Um, and being able to connect that way. It's not the same, but it's, you know, you get that support and you also can hear someone say, yeah, me too. This is hard for us too. Um, and so you don't feel alone in that the, the challenge of this. So I want to take a minute and ask a little bit about how you're approaching this as a business owner as well. Um, oh, I yeah. think many of the people who listen to this podcast um, are also uh, run their own practice. And so I'm curious, how are you sort of adapting and changing? Obviously, there's the social distancing piece, but I I'm interested in particular in the way that you're reaching out to people. And part of the way, and the reason why we're talking today is because the way that you and I kind of, how I met you through some of the things that you were doing with respect to outreach. So can you talk a little bit about that uh, perspective? So as a private practice owner, I've got 12 staff underneath me and a few interns coming soon. Gosh, really staying connected when all of this really, when, when all of this started happening, having a staff meeting right away, we're going to have to start moving to telemental health. This is how, here's all the resources you need. Um, so really being there and being present for everyone when they need me, um, text me, you know, that's okay right now. I, you know, I can reach back out to you quicker that way. If you need support, um, after the first few weeks, once everyone was really comfortable with the telemental health side of things, then it was just keeping in touch. How are you doing emotionally? Um, you know, one of my staff was supposed to get married. Uh, one of my staff was, was an intern and was supposed to graduate. Um, and so there's been a lot of loss of, of some of the things that we were all looking forward to at this time of the year. Um, and so supporting them through that as well. Um, and then with the outreach, shifting the gears from the practice to our practices always have a sense of how do we, how are we serving the community? A question we ask ourselves probably every other staff meeting is if we were to disappear with the community notice, and so we always want to make that imprint. We want to make sure we're, we're impacting the community in a positive way. And so it's, okay, so all the goals and ideas we had before, you know, we're going to put all those on hold and we're going to shift our focus. How are people hurting right now? How are people struggling and how can we help? Um, so we put out a free ebook. We um, spent the first like three weeks of the pandemic writing that together as a team. Each person got a chapter. So that was a really great team effort. And we all since had a sense of coming together, which I think was really nice and pretty powerful at the beginning of all of this. And so that's being put out there. Um, we can share the link if you guys need it um, to download that for absolutely free. Um, and then we also want to serve those who are serving us. And so we're offering no cost counseling services for those in the front lines. So this is anyone in the medical profession, uh, first responders, anyone who's lost their em employment, because that's devastating uh, to have to no fault of your own 
be in a place of how am I going to pay my bills? Um, I can imagine how scary that is. And so really being able to offer that support as people move through this time, because I think one thing that isn't being spoken about, we see all the COVID-19 numbers, how many people have it, how many people have passed away, but how many people have passed away to suicide and how much of an increase has that been? Um, that's also a devastating number too. And it's not something that people like talking about, but it does happen. And so making sure we're reaching out to those who are really, really lost and having a really hard time handling this with all the change that's been going on and making sure they know they're not alone. I think that's so important to think about the oftentimes hidden or or removed kind of ways in which people are experiencing pain and hurt and, and isolation and that the power of counseling and mental health support is is so critical in helping to reach those who are feeling that sense of isolation, particularly mm-hmm. in this time. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm also interested, you know, you mentioned a little earlier that there were some of your clients who you think might stay on with telehealth mm-hmm. even after, you know, things yeah. maybe open up with respect to social distancing. And so, you know, you've had to respond and change your practice with uh, telemental health platforms. You've done outreach to different people and populations that might be particularly hurting. How do you think this changes your organization, your business moving forward? And how are we going to be thinking differently about counseling and mental health after this is all done? That is a great question. Uh, I think we're going to, I think there's going to be more people that are going to be open to telemental health. And I think we as counselors are realizing the power that's there with it because there's, there can be a lot of barriers to counseling, you know, finding the time, driving in our Atlanta traffic, which is awesome. Let me tell you, um, <laughs> and, ma- and managing schedules with all your kids calendars, because I mean, uh, kids nowadays with these sporting um, different events they've got, they've got five practices a week and then they've got two games on Saturdays. So when do parents get to catch their breath and actually get to be themselves and look at each other and say, hey, we're a couple, let's talk and, and have a relationship. And so it it can open up that door to those couples who are running that fast or to individuals. Um, I know some of our professionals have really appreciated being able to do online because they can just have a little bit of an extended lunch break and come in in the middle of the day and it not mess up their afternoon plans with their family. And so that, that can be really helpful for them too. So it's opened the door. Uh, a lot of the counselors who maybe were more resistant to mental health, they didn't really see how that could work as well because of that, you know, the lack of connection, personal connection in the room are more open at this point to, wow, this is okay. Um, not everybody is. I've gotten a lot of feedback from some counselors. of just, nope, I am going back to face-to-face and that's all I'm doing. Um, but I've heard a lot more of, this isn't half bad. Now I'm going to definitely have a face-to-face practice, but this is nice. I might have a day a week where I'm telling mental health. And so I see to our practice, a uh, shifting more in that direction where we have more of a hybrid. Now, we were we were really lucky that we were already looking at that at the beginning of this year, end of last year, of how to reach out more and have more telemental health services offered to anyone in the state of Georgia. So we were already gearing up for that. Then this hit, and then it's like, well, this is going to happen a lot faster than we thought it was going to. So here we go. <laughs> um, and so so it's already been something we've been talking about, uh, but now it's it's much more of a reality. Yeah. And I think that um, you mentioned everybody in the state of Georgia, and it made me think of people living in rural areas and how often they they don't have access to the kind of services that they need. And that this can really be something that crosses that barrier, even in times when we are open to and not doing social distancing. 
that's one thing that we were really hoping to do with the telemental health is, you know, South Georgia, you know, um, North Georgia, um, anywhere outside of a metropolitan area, it's, it is really hard. There may be one counselor, but is that the right counselor for you, you know, with their specialty and what they have, um, experience working with. And so being able to reach out to those communities because, you know, people need this everywhere. And so, uh, that was our main drive was doing that as well as being able to serve, um, underserved populations, like, especially with the elderly. We have a really great counselor, Lindsay, who that's her, that, that's what she got her degree in is working with the elderly and, you know, some of that end of life issues, loss, meaning, um, finding purpose, different things like that. That's her niche. That's what she does so well. And the elderly don't like online. They're not as friendly to it. And so uh, this may also help, uh, them having to use it to, uh, connect with their family during this time, especially with them having to be extra safe. Uh, they may be more open to, okay, yeah, maybe seeing a counselor through this portal. So I don't have to get out it because that's hard. Um, I can, I can open the door, the door for them. Erica, thanks so much. And, you know, as we are kind of wrapping up our conversation today, I was wondering if you could share, um, again, some of the resources that you've put together for people, um, who are seeking out or who may be in need of counseling or mental health services. Can you share some of those resources and where they can find them? Absolutely. So if they need any kind of resources, we have a intake line answered Monday through Friday, nine to five by a counselor, not a, not a, you know, a paid person. It's it. one of our counselors is answering the phone and that phone number is 404-834-2363. Also, we are putting up um, Monday through Friday, different um, means of support, different um, educational, uh, inspirational things on our Facebook page that uh, can hopefully help. So and we try to make it each day to a different population, parents, uh, you know, couples, individuals, different things that you, you can practically use today to help you through this. We also have the ebook, which I can share the, you know, we can share that link with this um, recording. Um, also, if you are one of those that are really struggling and things are getting kind of dark and heavy um, and you're having thoughts about death or dying, you can text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741-741. So you just simply text TALK to 741-741 and someone will respond to help you walk through that who knows how to ask the right questions and is is ready to care. Um, also, the crisis hotline in Georgia is one 800 273-8255. Um, and that will be answered live by someone who's there to help and there to care. So those are some great resources to use. Um, and, and we're here to help too. Even if we don't end up being the counselor that you end up choosing, we're here to help you find the right one. Erica, thank you so much for sharing those resources and your practice wisdom with us today. And so grateful to have you on. So grateful to be here as well. Thank you so much for having me. And again, that was Erica Gregory, licensed marriage and family therapist and owner of Johns Creek and Alpharetta Counseling. You can follow her work on Facebook at Alpharetta Counseling and on Twitter at JCA Counseling One. Thanks so much for listening. The Common Good Hour is produced by Common Good Data. To access the show notes and learn more about our speakers and guests, navigate to www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on Facebook and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Spark dialogue with us on Twitter. You'll find us at the handle at Common Good Hour. We look forward to continuing our conversation with you.